You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. (laughs) You guys ever stop and listen to the lyrics of that song? They're terrifying. If set to horror music, we would be horrified every time someone sings those. And yet, many of us, both inside the church and outside the church, have this picture of God that looks a lot like Santa Claus. We think that we just have to build up our nice lists by following the right rules in this book. Make sure your naughty list is short. Make sure your nice list is built up so that God will approve of you and love you. That's why we do many of the religious things we do. I come to church so that I get God's approval. I read my Bible so that I get God's approval. I pray so that I get God's approval. I do the right thing so that I can be approved. It's very self-determining. Sure, God is loving, God is gracious, but when the rubber meets the road, you better watch out. You better do the right thing, because God's love is always dependent on that. There's just one thing wrong with that picture of God. Jesus. See, Jesus came to earth, claimed to be God, claimed to be God manifest in the flesh, and he didn't work like that. His life, death, and resurrection is evidence to us that that's not how God is, and his teachings about God always remind us God doesn't look a whole lot like Santa Claus. It's a much, much different picture. And in this next installment in our series of we're calling Enduring Questions, we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells about who God is. It's a reminder to every single one of us. Here's how the story goes. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger? I will get up. I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. 
Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command and yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I once told this story uh, in a class that I was teaching at GCU a couple semesters ago. It's a freshman class, an introduction to Christian theology. So I use this story as an example of how Jesus understands God. And then created some dialogue around people's observations, what struck them, what stuck out to them. And I remember one kid's observation. It will stick with me forever. He raised his hand. He said, I know this story really well. I've been raised in the church. I, I, I've heard it over and over and over. And I never knew there was an elder brother. No one ever told me that part of the story. They just stopped it in the middle. That's interesting. He was raised in church. He went week after week, and yet he never got the full story. He only got part of it. Why? Right? Why is it that Christians tend to focus on one part of the story without focusing on the other? There's a couple different reasons that stuck out to me as I was reflecting this week. One, we like the younger son's story because it's spicy. He flips the bird to his father. He runs away. We can picture gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever you want to picture. It's a dissolute living. It's ambiguous. Whatever he did to waste his property. We love a spicy story like this where somebody's doing the things that they aren't supposed to do. And if you want evidence that we like this sort of story, just look at the TV shows that we stream, right? Succession, anyone? Ozark. I know there's some Ozark watchers in here. Real Housewives of wherever. Grey's Anatomy, The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Yeah. Ah. Ah, it pains me. It pains me. Tiger King? <laughs> Man, that got some groans. Okay. Um, there's, there's, never again. There's a second season. It's, ah. There's literally a show just called Scandal. It doesn't even front. It's just like, oh, you want scandal? Here it is, right here. Four seasons, ready to stream. We love spicy stories, but we also love sentimental stories. I think that's the second part here, because it doesn't end with all of the dissolute living of the younger brother. It concludes really happy, right? He comes home. His father welcomes him. He's sorrowful for what he's done in the party's thrown. We love a story that ends in a party where everyone is nice and happy about what's happened. We've sentimentalized this story. We're content with ending it after part one because it's nice and wrapped up. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. He had no intention of ending the story there. He keeps on going. 
And his audience, by the way, wouldn't have sentimentalized the story. Both parts of the story were utterly offensive to his audience. It wasn't a sentimental, positive, and encouraging story. Remember, people hated Jesus, and this story was a big reason why. So we need to be careful not to get caught up in stopping the story in the middle and overly sentimentalizing it. It's helpful for us to remember what Jesus is doing here, not just giving us a nice story. Last week, we chatted about part one together, how the younger son radically undermines our picture of God, our picture of ourselves, and how we get true life. If you want to listen to that sermon, you can go on our website and give it a listen to return to it. Today, we're going to look at part two, the elder brother, the forgotten parts of the story for many of us. It radically undermines our understanding of God as well. And Jesus, I think, is doing three main things in this passage. These guide the story. He's teaching us three things. One, that everyone is lost, everyone. Two, that everyone is loved, everyone. And three, that everyone is led to respond, everyone. Everyone is loved, everyone is lost, and everyone is led to respond. Let's start with everyone is lost. Let's jump into the story here. Right away, the elder son is uh, revealed to us to be working in the field. He's working hard, and he's on his way back home, and he sees a party going on, some lights, maybe some dancing in the distance. He's got some music that he hears, and so he calls one of the servants. He's like, hey, what's, what's going on? The servant says, your brother, he's back. Come and celebrate with us. And the text says the elder son refuses to go in. Why? Right? This is his long-lost brother. Why would he not want to celebrate? Well, the text says he's angry. He's resentful. He wants no part of a home or a family that's willing to welcome someone back who did this. He's mad that this would even be a thing in his family, and he distances himself from the family because of it. He's saying, you're telling me he wasted every bit of your property. He did whatever he wanted with it, and all he can do is stroll back in, and you not only welcome him, but celebrate him? You make him a son again? I've been working my tail off here, and you just let him waltz in. If that's how this family's gonna run, I don't wanna be a part of it. I'm gonna stay out here. I don't want to be a part of your home or your family, if that's how it works. You see what Jesus is doing between the younger brother and the elder brother here? He's paralleling them. In the story, both of them are outside home. Both of them reject their family. They do it in different ways. But it's very clear that with the elder brother staying outside the home, he is rejecting his home. He's rejecting the way that the family is working. The older son's language implies this rejection over and over. When his father comes out to him, he says, listen, you he doesn't refer to him as father. He doesn't refer to him as any sort of familial connection. He distances himself from his father. And then he says, I've been working like a slave, which is an interesting phrase. One, because he's not a slave, he's a son. So whatever happens here, he's not that role. And he knows that he's going to get his father's inheritance when he dies. And in fact, he's already gotten the inheritance. Earlier in the story, you might remember, when the younger son demands the inheritance from the father, the father says, or the text says, the father divided the property between them, which means the younger son already has everything. He has nothing to complain about. Everything that his, father's, his father has is his already. So this is just patently untrue here. 
He's not a slave. He is a son who already has all of the privileges of being a son in his possession, and he still perceives of himself as a slave. He's not understanding that the father's love for him has already been poured out independent of what he's done, independent of any work he has to do. And then he says about his brother, this son of yours, right? You know when parents sometimes joke like they don't want to wake their kid up when they're crying about, hey, that's your kid, not my kid. You got to go, take care of that. He's distancing himself again here. That's not his brother. That's his dad's son, but that's, that's not his brother. So we learn on the outside here that the elder son has done all of the right things. He stayed at home. He worked the land. He remained faithful to his father on the outside. But this situation is exposing that that's not equally true on the inside. He's wandered away from the father and hasn't trusted that the love of the father is there for him independent of what he does. He's just as concerned, actually, with the father's stuff, the possessions of the father, as the younger son. He's just masking it differently. You notice what makes him really angry in the story? The calf. It's like, whatever, man, it's a cow. Like, why is that such a big deal, right? Well, in this day, the fattened calf was a delicacy. Meat was not something you ate every day in that culture. We are a little spoiled by getting meat whenever we want it, but that's not true. So it was saved for a special occasion, and the fatted calf was the most special of occasions. Think Thanksgiving dinner and maybe even more special than that. It would have fed dozens of people. This is a rager of a party. The reason the elder son opposes this is because he believes that the father is not using his resources correctly. And he cares about the stuff. He cares about getting the father's possessions on his own dime, on his own time, not based on what the father wants to do with those possessions. He is believing that he can get the father's stuff on his terms and use it better. So both are rejecting their family here. The younger son did it by running away with the father's stuff and following his heart. The elder son does it by rejecting the father and staying at home, simply trying to get his stuff by his good actions. But they're both self-justifying. They both believe they can use the father's stuff better than the father does. That's the point here. Jesus makes them a mirror to each other. And that's huge, you guys. It's not just about doing the thing externally that's right for approval. It's about not believing in the notion that I can obtain true life based on my effort, that my heart or my willpower is the way to my home, my true spiritual home. That's the question that Jesus wants us to ask here. Do we believe that the way to true spiritual life and peace and home is by our own effort, either through following our heart or by doing the right thing? If we believe that, Jesus says, no matter which side you're on, you're lost. Everyone is lost. And that's a groundbreaking redefining of what lost means. Because most of us in this room think about people who are lost as the outwardly obvious ones. The drunks, the hookers, the bums, the swindlers, the used car salesmen. They're all lost, and they all need to return home. But by saying they're all lost, I'm implying a dichotomy. That those of us who have things figured out on the outside, those of us who do the right religious things, who show up to church and read our Bibles, we're, we're not lost. We've got it figured out here. We create a dichotomy, and Jesus is destroying that here. He's saying that you can be just as lost in your goodness as you can in your badness. 
you can be just as lost in your goodness as you can in your badness. There's a visual that I wanted to give you guys that I think helps illustrate this well. This is from a book by a guy named Mark Baker. Uh, he talks about different sorts of, of religious structures and churches in particular and how churches tend to function versus how he thinks they ought to function uh, in the way of Jesus. So first, uh, this is how churches often function. Uh, he uses this language of a bounded set. What he functionally is saying here is that there are insiders that are defined by a certain boundary, a certain religious boundary. Right? I believe certain things in my mind, or I say certain things, or I do certain things, and therefore I'm an insider. And if you haven't crossed that boundary, then you're an outsider. If you haven't prayed the prayer, if you haven't participated in church in a certain way, if you don't believe a certain theological idea, then you're an outsider. The problem is that when Jesus shows up, routinely, he exposes that the insiders are far from God. The people who do all the right religious things in their hearts aren't actually close to the heart of God. And those who are on the outside are often closer to God because they know how far they are. They're moving in the right direction. And so Jesus, what many scholars call the great reversal happens in his ministry. He reverses those who are insiders and exposes them, many of them, as outsiders, not all of them. And then he goes to those who are outside and actually says, well, these people are close to the kingdom of God because they know how lost they are. So this bounded set mentality creates a dichotomy that, well, Jesus tends to undermine a lot. So what's a better way to function in church? Well, that's the second set here, the centered set. He says that, Ultimately, instead of focusing on the boundary, we need to focus on the center. What is the thing that we're all being drawn to? What matters is the orientation of my heart towards Jesus. And the church's job is to focus as best as possible on revealing who Jesus is so that people will be oriented towards him, not towards a religious boundary. And you'll notice that there can be people here who are really close to Jesus but go in the opposite direction, right? They can be at home going to church every week and reading their Bible every week, but they can be far from the heart of God because they believe that they're earning it based on their religious effort. The point is not how close or far you are. The point is, am I oriented towards the center? Am I moving towards Jesus? That's the picture of the church that Mark gives us. And this, by the way, doesn't mean that there's not a difference between Christians and non-Christians. There is. The difference is that Christians are regularly acknowledging that they are lost and need to return to the center. And non-Christians believe, well, I'm not lost, right? And sometimes you can have non-Christians in a church. Sometimes you can have Christians who see a lot of difficulty in the church, right? It's not defined by the religious boundary. It's defined by the orientation towards Jesus, the orientation towards him. And the Pharisees, at this time, one of Jesus' main audiences, they were big-time bounded set people. They were all about the boundary line. You cross this boundary line, and then you're in. If you haven't crossed that boundary line, you're out. And to be fair, we, we give the Pharisees a bad rap. They were fairly well-intentioned oftentimes. They loved these texts a lot. They oriented their lives. They wanted to protect God's law. But what we learn all throughout Jesus' ministry is that their outward piety masked a heart that was far from God because they overlooked the poor and the sick. They aligned themselves with worldly power for their own gain. They elevated themselves over other non-religious people. And so when God actually shows up into their midst, Jesus, they end up murdering him. The insiders killed the one that they said they were nearest to because they felt that it was about their effort. They had a kingdom of self, and when the kingdom of God shows up, those two things are going to conflict. So the elder son in this story, it's uh, a, an example for us of the sorts of people 
who follow God but are more concerned with things like worldly power, concerned with looking impressive, concerned with dictating the morality of other people around them? Does that sound like anybody today? Concerned with worldly power, looking impressive, making sure we have things figured out, dictating the morality of others? It's a lot of what the church does. We should see ourselves in this text, those of us that come to church. We love to wed ourselves to power. We love uh, adhering to certain political ideologies so that we can have more cultural sway. We love looking impressive, and when we don't look impressive, we love sweeping it under the rug. We aren't willing to acknowledge when we mess up as often, and we love talking about how everyone out there is doing things wrong. Friends, our religion is often our greatest obstacle to God. Our religion is often our greatest obstacle to God. And I realize I'm saying that as a religious person to all of you doing a religious thing right now. But that's all the more reason to say it. Because if we just keep going through these motions, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss the heart of Jesus because we think, well, I read my Bible today. We're good. I, I crossed the boundary line. I'm inside. That's not the point. The point is to become more and more like Jesus every single day and to orient ourselves around the center. We often forget what it feels like to be lost when we do this religious thing. And therefore, we buy into the notion that we're not. And I can tell you that that happens because it's happened to me. I don't have a major younger son story in my life. I didn't run away and do all of this crazy living. Growing up, pot, when I heard pot, it was just the thing you cooked in. It's not anything else. When I heard Coke, it was just a, something fizzy that you drink, right? It, there was nothing else in my life. And I always got affirmation for doing the right external religious things. Everyone always told me, you're, you're doing great. Like, here's all of the ways that you're being a good insider. And so I became enveloped in a devious lie. And no one ever explicitly told this to me. But I kind of started to buy into it. I bought into the idea that, you know what, I've, I've got this figured out. Like, I'm doing the right things here. I've got all of this outstanding moral effort. And I've been established and approved based on those efforts. But underneath that exterior, I often carried all sorts of ugliness that looked a lot like the outsiders that I was claiming were over there. I carried fear, lust, envy, greed, pride. But I masked it. I buried it under my religion. That's always the danger of religious living. We aren't better off because of our religion, and oftentimes it makes us more blind to our lostness. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not anti-religious either. Jesus was a very religious person. He's a first century Jewish rabbi. He was a devout religious person. So religion is not the issue. That's an important thing for us to remember. Just because we're religious doesn't necessarily mean it's intrinsically bad. What it does mean is that we need to be careful when we're religious to not equate that with the center. We need to be careful not to focus on the boundary line as much as we focus on the center in Jesus. We need to always be redefining our lives based on the center. Notice, when you look at the boundary line, you're facing outward. When you look at the center, you're pointing inward. So, everyone's lost. Cool, thanks, Jesus, for that uplifting message, right? Not quite as sentimental as we thought. But the story doesn't end there. There's a couple more parts here. We also learn that everyone is loved, and we see that through the action of the father. Notice how the father's action to both the younger son and the elder son mirrors itself again. 
the father ran out to the younger son when he came home, and he came out to the elder son. He goes to both of them, initiates to both of them. And then to both of them, he reiterates to them that everything he has is theirs. That no action that they've taken makes them better or worse in his eyes. He does that with the younger son by putting a robe on him, sandals, and a ring. He does that with the elder son just by saying it straight up. Everything I have is yours. And that's literally true. I've already given it to you. And then he invites them both back to the party. Neither son is given privileged status based on what they've done or failed to do. They're both welcomed back to the party. The father doesn't prefer the elder son because he's, of what he's done for him, and he doesn't prefer the younger son because he's returned. His love actually doesn't show favoritism at all. And that's because being a child is not something that can be earned or unearned. It is given based on nothing that we've done. Question for you guys. What did you do to become a son or a daughter? Nothing. Your parents did some stuff, right? But you didn't do anything to warrant that title. It's true of you. And whether or not you receive that, whether or not you want to live at home, whether or not you want to ultimately uh, adhere to your family and recognize your family is up to you. But you are a son. You are a daughter. Jesus is saying that God looks at every single one of us in the same way. That nothing you do changes this reality. You are a beloved daughter. You are a beloved son of the most high God. Nothing changes that. This isn't a making a list and checking it twice spirituality. This isn't Santa Claus. This is something radically other. And this doesn't mean, by the way, that the father approves of everything that each of the sons did. Right? It doesn't mean that because he loves us, therefore he approves of us going to other homes. He is very clear here that home is here. Home is near to the Father and abiding with the Father and making sure that we do the same with our siblings and take care of the property around us. Right? He's saying that there is a way to live and a way not to live, but shaming people over that is not going to help. They've already experienced the pain and the loss of pursuing their own ways. They don't need more of that from the Father. They simply need an invitation back home. And notice he doesn't force anyone back. The Father is not coercive. He invites them. He says, it's here. This is true. Will you trust it? Will you believe that this is true about who you are? God's love is never something that coerces us. There's a good quote from a guy named Arthur Freeman. He's a, a pastor who lived in the 20th century. Uh, he puts it this way. Yeah. The father loves each son and gives each the freedom to be what he can, but he cannot give them the freedom that they will not take. The father seems to realize beyond the customs of his society the need of his sons to be themselves. But he also knows their need for his love and a home. How their stories will be completed is up to them. The father's love is not dependent upon an appropriate completion of the story. The father's love is only dependent on himself and remains part of his character. As Shakespeare says in one of his sonnets, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds. Father's love is there based on the Father, not based upon anything that you've done. Your sonship and your daughtership is secure based on what the Father says. And there's an example of this from Jesus' life that I think is telling for us as well. A couple of his disciples that, even if you haven't been raised in the church, you might know these names. Uh, Judas and Peter. You guys remember the stories of Judas and Peter? There's one major similarity. They both denied Jesus. Both betrayed 
Jesus in some of the most difficult times in Jesus' life. The difference between their responses is that one comes back. One acknowledges that what he did was wrong and believes that Jesus can welcome him back because he trusts in the love of the Father. The other one doesn't have that trust. The other one is unwilling to acknowledge that his actions don't define him, but that God's love does. One of them comes back and becomes a cornerstone of the early church. The other one commits suicide. That's the difference here. Both of them denied. Both of them betrayed. Both of them were lost. And both of them were loved. And they had to choose to receive that love or not. That's what our role is. It's not to earn anything. It's to receive what's true about us and live out of that new reality. The love of God is unchanged, regardless of anything that any of you have done. But it's not going to coerce and it's not going to force you. It's going to invite you back. And that leads us to this third and final point. Everyone is led to respond. Both sons in the story are lost. Both are loved. But the difference for them is the response. That's the important distinction between the stories. Notice the younger son, he comes back and is invited by the father to receive his new sonship. Now, he doesn't have to. He puts the robe on him. He puts the, the ring on him. He puts the sandals on him. The son can be like, cool, I'm good, and I'm out. Right? I got the stuff of the father, and I can go follow my heart again. But he doesn't. He chooses to say, yeah, you know, this is where my home is. This is where true, lasting life is. And so I'm going I'm to stay here. I'm going to receive my identity. The elder son is also given the same opportunity. The father says, everything I have is yours. You're welcome to the party. But what's his response? We don't know. Jesus ends the story with a cliffhanger, which is frustrating for so many of us, right? I'm sure you guys have been watching a movie and the closing credits roll when you don't want them to, and you're like, what the heck, right? Where's the ending of the story? Jesus seems fine, by the way, with giving us a cliffhanger. So maybe there's something else going on here, right? The, the closing credits of the movie are rolling just after the father's face has been pleading with the son to come back. He's telling us that it's up to us to respond. That's what he wants us to do here. He leaves it open so that all of us who read this story would think, well, what would I do? How would I respond to what the Father does here? Am I willing to trust that God's love really looks like this? Or do I want to keep living as if I can define life on my own? I can define it through following my heart, or I can define it through religious moralism. Guys, the only thing, the only thing that differentiates the Christian from the non-Christian is their willingness to acknowledge their lostness. That's the difference. They're both lost. Are you willing to acknowledge it? It's never been about what we've done. It's never been about what we failed to do because that's not how this God works. But Jesus is abundantly clear that the only one who doesn't receive the love of the Father is the one who thinks they don't need it. The only one who doesn't receive the love of the Father is the one who thinks they don't need it. And that means that the only way home is by giving up our pursuits at life in whatever direction we're chasing. So he's asking every one of us, will you join the party? To be clear, the only ones at the party are the ones who know they're lost and know they're dead, who know that there's no other place for life outside of this home. It's a party of lostness, so you've got to be prepared that. But I can tell you, the party of lostness and the party of deadness, way more alive than anything else you're going to find out there. Way more love. Way more grace. Way more life in this party than anywhere else you could go. So are you willing to be lost? Are you willing to name it 
and return to the center? Are you willing to come back home? Because real life is waiting for you. Every one of us is lost in need of a true, lasting spiritual home. Every one of us is loved, independent of anything we've done or failed to do. And that means every one of us is led to respond. Let's be a community that comes home, friends, day after day. Let's be a community that goes outside of these walls on Sunday morning and invites others to come back home. Because it's a party. Let's pray.